the things that I would do as a Christian, the way that I pray, the way that I would fast, you know, this made no sense to my neighbors, even daily tasks, like the way that I would cut my fingernails. Some of my Somali friends would tell me that was dangerous because if I left the clippings exposed, someone could gather them up and curse me. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we talk to a different Christian about their life, faith and ministry. And I'm really pleased to say that my guest today is Rachel Pye-Jones. Rachel is a writer and speaker on faith and culture. And her latest book is Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. Really looking forward to talking about the book and also Rachel's broader life and testimony. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here with you. So you grew up in America, didn't you? Um, Tell me a little bit about what that was like. Were you raised in a Christian home? What was faith like from an early age? Yeah, I'm an American. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I was raised in a Christian family. So my family attended a Baptist church my whole life. Every relative even that I can think of identified as Christian. So it was definitely what was around me. And um, I don't even remember actually becoming a Christian myself, but the story that my parents tell me is that when I was about four years old, my older sister told me I had two possible destinations. One was hell and one was heaven. And hell was a place where I would be inside a crib and all my toys would be outside the crib. And so I didn't want to go there. And so, you know, the best way to get out of that kind of terrible situation would be to trust in Jesus and ask Jesus into my heart. And so I prayed with my mom to invite Jesus into my heart. And I had no understanding of what that meant. Um, I thought, you know, Jesus is a, a nice person. He did good things. And so other nice characters and people who did good things that I knew about, I also invited into my heart. You know, it just seemed like a great idea to have as many good people hanging out with me as possible. So, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, but as I grew up, I continued attending church, reading the Bible, learning and growing more and more. And, and definitely at some point along my journey made a real personal commitment. I I don't have a point in time that I can, you know, pinpoint, but uh, following Jesus has just been a real commitment and a, a way of life for me. And was that something that sort of continued through the ups and downs of things like, you know, teenage years and difficult times at school? And, you know, has it been quite consistent in that sense? I would say that, yes, it has been pretty consistent. Um, You know, there were different points in which I wasn't as involved. But for me, I always knew that I wanted and was committed to Jesus. So it really became more of a something that I was learning more about in college when I was a freshman in college, I went to a a large public American university. And um, the, I I knew that I needed to make a real conscious decision at that point. Am I going to really commit to Jesus? Or am I going to go the way of the world and just kind of um, not so seriously follow this Christian walk? And so I joined an organization on campus, a Christian organization, and they were really, really committed to studying the Bible, knowing what we believed and not just professing it, but understanding it to a deeper level. And so the people in that community, I was really challenged by the way that they knew 
actually their faith and understood the Bible on a deeper level than even I did after all those years of growing up in the church. I hadn't done my own study. And so it was really in college that I deepened my faith in terms of knowledge. But yeah, it was always something that I, I knew I wanted and, and loved being a Christian, loved following Jesus. Yeah. So as I said at the beginning, you're now living in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa. So um, was that understanding of there's a, there's a whole world out there beyond America? Was that something that was sort of in your, in your mind growing up from an early age? Or did that come later, that interest in, in what was happening in other places and other parts of the world? I was always interested in what was happening around the world. You know, my church had missionaries that would come and speak. And so that was something I was exposed to at a young age. I read books about people who lived internationally. I thought that was really interesting. I think partly because my upbringing was so homogenous in terms of both religion, but also race and um, economic status, you know, it was pretty similar. Everyone was like each other. And I wanted more than that. I wanted to be, I was curious about other places, other people, other cultures. And so that definitely was part of my desire from a young age. And then when my husband and I got married, we moved into this apartment complex high rise that was downtown Minneapolis. It was close to the University of Minnesota campus. And that complex was mostly filled at that time with Somali refugees. And so right away, most of my neighbors were from the Horn of Africa. Um, you know, the languages I heard in the hallway in the elevator, the food that I smelled in the hallways was from the Horn of Africa. And I was really intrigued by that. And they were mostly Muslim. You know, Somalis are almost 100% Muslim. And so that was my first real experience of living in a place where I was, even though I was one of the only natural born Americans in that apartment building, I felt like an outsider because I wasn't in the majority anymore. And it was it was interesting and I enjoyed it. It was hard sometimes, but I also really enjoyed that experience of learning and seeing a different way of life. And so through friends from that actual building, we started to learn more about Somalia and my husband had wanted to be a professor. He now has a PhD in education. And so we were told about this university in Northern Somalia, Somaliland, which was peaceful at that time. We weren't interested in going to Mogadishu to the South. It wasn't really a possibility even for Americans at that time. But in the North, there was this functional university that was really trying to grow and they were looking for English speaking professors. And so they intentionally recruited us, my husband specifically, and so at that point we knew, okay, here's a, a place where we could experience all these things I talked about of being stretched culturally. Um, you know, the Horn of Africa was about as far different as I could imagine from my upbringing. And we would have local people who were welcoming us, who wanted us to come and who could shepherd and guide our time there. We didn't want to come in and just say, hey, we're from someplace else and we know what you guys need and we're here to help you. You know, we pretty much knew we had no idea how to live there or what to do there. But because we had these people welcoming us, we felt like we could come under their leadership and you know submit to their guidance and then try to do something productive and helpful. Often when people go um, abroad, they experience a kind of culture shock. Um, was there a culture shock for you or perhaps, perhaps less of a culture shock because of your experience living in America where you were surrounded by people of that culture. So you knew a little of the language or the food, maybe it was less of a shock. I don't know. I think it was absolutely a shock. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was 2003. So just two years after nine 11. And so even though I had that experience, 
of being around Somali Muslims, there was still a lot of negativity in right. the U.S. Christian circle about about Muslims, about Somalis. There was a lot of fear, and so yeah, I was familiar with some of the smells and the food, and I heard the language, but I had not actively studied it yet. And it's very different still to be in a place in my own culture where I could just step out of that apartment complex and yeah. be in my home, literally my home, you know. And then all of a sudden we're in a village. It was a small town at that time in Northern Somalia where everything was different. The clothing that I wore was different. The language I spoke, there was no electricity or a little bit of electricity, no running water. Um, you know, very few white people had ever lived in this village before. I had two-year-old twins. And so there's these toddlers walking around. You know, every single thing I could think of that would be different was different. And so the culture shock was intense. I felt a lot, often that I was sort of uh, almost playing a game, like speaking memorized lines, wearing a costume, trying to get through the day. Um, it was quite challenging initially, but everything was as different as I could have imagined from how I grew up. You mentioned as well that um, there were certain perceptions, I suppose, of, of Muslims, particularly in America. This was, as you say, a couple of years after 9-11. But even with that aside, I imagine you grew up with certain, I guess, stereotypes that you were taught about what Muslims were like. Um, and really, a lot of your story in the book is, is how those stereotypes were, were gradually kind of demolished when you actually met real life Muslims and thought this is quite different to what I've been told about who you are. So can you tell me a little bit about what you were taught about Muslims and how living amongst Muslims has really changed your perception on what you were told before? So when I grew up, I don't remember even thinking about Muslims. Anybody who wasn't even Baptist, I kind of felt like they were outside my kingdom circle in a sense. So, you know, Catholics, Lutherans, it was hard even to, to think that we shared a faith. I just had a very black and white way of thinking about it, which is, I think, a natural thing for a child. But we didn't talk about Muslims. I didn't know any. I didn't know any until college where I met my first Muslim friend and realized right away that my ideas about her had been pretty different. This was then before 9-11. But I, at that point, I had basically developed an idea, I suppose, from media that Muslim women were covered and oppressed, that um, Islam was an enemy kind of religion type of thing. And then I met this woman from Nigeria, and she was wonderful. She was hilarious. She did not cover her hair. She made jokes. She talked with men and women. You know, there was not really a, she just felt like a friend. Um, and so I had to right away reconsider at, at least at some level those ideas about Islam. I still didn't articulate it clearly to myself, but but then especially after 9-11 in the U.S., you know, there was a lot of mass emails that would go around full of big capital letters and exclamation points and all these things about how terrible Muslim Muslims are and how much connection there is between Islam and terrorism. And, and I, I already felt like that's not quite right. You know, I knew that wasn't right for my experience with her as a friend. And then from living in that building where, you know, Muslims had been very kind to us there as well. And I had met people and experienced hospitality there. Um, we lived in that building when my twins were born and my neighbors were Muslim and they would come over and help me clean the house. And when they would hear the babies crying, they would bring food. You know, there was just such a different way of being in actual relationship with Muslims and what I had um, heard from the media. So, yeah, all that. I kind of packed up those experiences of the good and also the ideas of the negative. 
brought them with me to the Horn of Africa and, um, and immediately had to reckon with and consider what does it mean to be a Christian in this place where I'm one of only a few and where everyone doesn't have the shared experience historically that I did growing up. Um, and so my faith was the outside faith here, you know, and that, that was really interesting for me to think about and reckon with and think about how do I practice my faith here in a way that makes sense? Because the, the things that I would do as a Christian, the way that I pray, the way that I would fast, you know, this made no sense to my neighbors, even daily tasks, like the way that I would cut my fingernails. Some of my Somali friends would tell me that was dangerous because if I left the clippings exposed, someone could gather them up and curse me using that, that. And so, you know, I just realized that the, the things I thought were just part of what I do didn't make sense to people or even put me at risk of being attacked by jinn. A, a jinn is a sort of mischievous devil type of figure. So yeah, it, it took a lot of rethinking about faith and reexamining what it looks like to practice faith um, and talking about faith with my neighbors. Yeah, that's a massive change, isn't it? Going from a context in America where Christians are in the majority to Horn of Africa where Christians are in the minority. And as you, I think you said, almost everyone is a Muslim. Um, so how did that change? I mean, did that change your faith? It, would you say today, well, the, the Christianity that I believe in is still the, the same doctrinally to what I grew up with? It, it might just be expressed differently. Or have you found that your actual core beliefs have, have shifted and changed as you've interacted um, in a completely different culture as well? What has been really interesting to me to experience over the years is that I don't think that my core doctrinal beliefs are that different. I think even I believe them and cherish them more because I understand them better than I did before. Um, but the way that I practice my faith, the way that I talk about it, and the way that I interact with people of a different faith, that has changed. So for example, the idea of the Trinity, it didn't really make sense to me before. It was hard to understand before. Um, I still could not say that I fully understand it. I think there's a, a level of mysteriousness to faith that's important to acknowledge, but, but Muslims have, I mean, that's kind of an offensive concept to a Muslim, the Trinity. And so, but I also came to understand that some Muslims thought Trinity would be God, the Father, God, the Son, and Mary. And so they also had a misunderstanding of what the Trinity meant to a Christian. And so as I understood that and then try to talk about this with friends and try to try to explain something that's even hard for me to understand, but also trying to counter the false idea that they had about what the Trinity even was, it, it made me think about it more than I had before, where I didn't have to think about it because the Christians around me, we just didn't even talk about it. And so in ways like that, I've come to appreciate more some of those doctrines and, and value them more, things like grace and forgiveness that I just um, am so thankful for. And so in that way, I feel like being around Muslims has made me examine my doctrines on a deeper level and then be able to articulate them in some way on an experiential level with my friends. When you first moved to that part of the world, you were in Somaliland. You mentioned your husband at the university there, but you actually left quite quickly, didn't you, after 10 months? Can you explain uh, what happened and why you had to leave the country? Yeah, so at that time, I said Somaliland was peaceful, but the peace was kind of precarious. There were a lot of weapons around, and it kind of felt like something could happen at any time. So we had a guard at our house, and he had guards at school. We weren't allowed out after dark. 
but we were able to develop friendships with our neighbors. However, by in October of 2003, there was an Italian woman who was running a clinic in the same town. She had worked with Somali nomads who had tuberculosis for decades, more than 30 years. And she was loved by everybody. Her name was Annalina Tonelli. And I actually had the privilege of writing her biography in, a couple of years ago. And she was assassinated inside the hospital compound. And we, you know, when that happened, it just, it was a shock to the entire community. And so we left the village for about a week. And then we came back and we weren't quite sure what we were going to do long-term. But then another couple, a British couple were murdered and they were professors at a different school, a boarding school nearby. And when that happened, our organization said, and actually every foreigner in the country said, we're out, it's unsafe right now. It's unclear why these people were attacked. And so, you know, we were slow moving with children, not very many foreigners had kids at the time. We were high profile as a family with kids and as Americans. And so we left, our, our boss called us and said, you have to be on the airplane in two hours. And it was a two hour drive to the airport. So we just threw whatever we could grab into a bag and took off. Um, and so that was in October, we spent a few months in Kenya. And then another Somali friend said, hey, we also need professors in Djibouti. Would you like to come up here and try that? And so Djibouti is bordered by Somaliland. It's right across the border. And so we came here in 2004, where my husband again taught at the university for about 10 years. And we've been here ever since. Wow. So now with the benefit of some time, do you have a bit more understanding of what led to those terrible killings and those attacks? Um, and it sounds like Westerners were being targeted, perhaps even. Yeah, that's an interesting question, because at that time, there was a lot of rumors as to why they were targeted and specifically why Annalina Tonelli, the Italian woman, was targeted. At first, it felt like it was and everybody was saying it was just an attack against her specifically because of her work with tuberculosis patients which also eventually included HIV patients, people felt like she was bringing HIV and tuberculosis to the village. And so even though everybody loved her, there was still this kind of anger that she was bringing these sick people there. And she had just won a significant award with the UNHCR. So she had an influx of money, which she needed to pay salaries for all the staff that she had. So there was all these things of maybe someone killed her for that money. Maybe someone killed her because they were upset about those diseases. But um, as we, as I learned more and more in writing her story and talking to different security people and, and different local doctors that were there at the time, it eventually I came to the conclusion that, and, and based a lot on these security officers, what they said, there was people at that time, uh, a group of Somalis who wanted to become uh, basically a terrorist organization. And so what they needed was funding and support from other groups like Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. And so by if they targeted a high profile person, then they would, um, you know, if they did it successfully, they would get what they needed to grow in their profile. And so basically that was why they targeted her and then this British couple. Um, and there was another attack a few months later of another, some other foreigners. And so it eventually came out that this group was trying to grow and that group is what became al-shabaab which is now the group that does operate out of somalia so so part of it was to access this high profile target it could have been anybody could have been us she annalina tonelli in particular 
refused all security. She didn't want armed guards at her house or at the hospital, which we did have. And so, you know, looking back, I can think it really, it could have been anybody in that. I don't know if retroactive fear is a real thing, but I can look back and think, oh yeah, we should have been more afraid than we were. Um, our naivety made us a little bit ignorant. Um, yeah, so that's that's what happened. So so when it comes to looking at um, a group like that, Al-Shabaab, Al you know, a, a lot of people in the West would, certainly a lot of Christians would say, well, yeah, this this is a form of Islamism, um, terrorism, of, of extremism, and it is at least in part theologically motivated is is that something that you would agree with having having lived there and uh, met people um that that there is a there is a religious component to this you know i would not call them an islamic terror group i'm not an expert on this and so i i don't want to speak too confidently about it but there are also people who call themselves christians and commit acts of terror and so are they theologically motivated? Sure. Is their theology skewed and wrongly interpreted? Yes. You know, but I also, as a Christian, I have to say, okay, this person identifies as a Christian. They've committed an act of terror. To say that then they are not a Christian, I think, is, is too simple of a response. We have to reckon with what is causing that person to interpret theology in that way. And so I think that's what most, most Muslims are doing. That's their response to these kind of quote unquote Islamic terror activity is that we can't say they aren't Muslim, but I don't think we can say their acts of terror are Muslim terror. You know, it's, it's people who have reinterpreted for their own purposes, some theologies and um, a lot of it is political, it's economic. It's very, you know, to call it religious, I think is, I don't think that's a full and complete answer. So it's too simplistic. And most Muslims, most Somali, I mean, the vast, vast majority of Somalis and of Muslims are not violent and are not out to attack people or kill people or threaten people even. So, you know, I've been here for 18 years and it's been overwhelmingly positive experiences of the people. So, yeah, it's hard to, I don't want to speak for Muslims about this issue, but it's forced me also to look at my own Christian faith and Christian global community and say, yes, there are people who do things I disagree with, and yet we claim to share a faith. What does that mean about faith? The book is um, subtitled How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. I'd love to hear a bit more about that, how interacting with Muslims has actually grown your own faith. Um, because I think, again, you know, the perception a lot of the time is um, is quite quite a wrong perception but there is one of oh well don't hang around too much with the atheists because you know they might convince you with your with their arguments or don't hang around with the muslims too much they might convert you and there is quite a lot of fear around isn't there but that's not been your experience your experience has been um being friends with muslims has grown your own faith so tell me a little bit about how that's worked yeah i think it's so common to feel threatened right by somebody who doesn't share our faith so exactly what you said of uh we should kind of be nervous if we spend time with someone who's not like us what if they impact us? Well, what does that say about our own faith? What is that attitude actually telling you about your faith? It means you don't really maybe believe it if you feel like it could be so easily tossed aside by some other idea. Um, or you know, maybe you already have some questions that are causing you to doubt it. And so you better protect against these other ideas. And I don't feel like that. Um, I feel like these other ideas, have they have raised questions, absolutely. But instead of feeling threatened by that, I feel like, okay, 
I have a question about what you just said about Jesus or about the Bible. So I'm going to go back and try to think about it. And I'm going to figure out what I do think about it. Not because my parents told me to believe that, not because my sister told me about being stuck in a crib for my whole life, but because I want to know why I believe this. And so being around people who ask me good questions and hard questions or sometimes easy questions has necessitated a deeper look at my own scriptures and history, you know, and it's been, um, I have learned so much. So a good example of that is the story of Hagar, who I knew Hagar was in Genesis 16, 17, the story of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. But, you know, I read it many times, but then I learned that Hagar actually plays a significant role in the Hajj pilgrimage that Muslims go on in Mecca. It's part of the, it's one of the five pillars of Islam. And she's never named in the Quran, but there's a lot of stories about her that are part of the hadith and the traditions that Muslims follow. And so when I heard that, I thought, well, that's really interesting. I would love to hear what Muslims think and read and talk about in terms of Hagar. And so looking at her story and the, the things that she did that they reenact on the Hajj made me go back and look at the Bible and say, okay, what was the relationship of Hagar to, to Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah and Abraham? And um, it just broadened my idea of the importance of her story and also helped to make it even more uh, visceral and tangible in the sense of it, there are more stories in Islam about her than there are in the Bible. And um, I'm not going to argue about the truth or the veracity of those stories, but thinking about her in a physical way helped me appreciate and understand more the stories of what she went through in the Bible. More. 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 We often want more, but is it always a bad thing? Isn't wanting more knowledge a good thing? What about more understanding? More perspective. More wisdom. More action. More inclusion. Discover more of the good things at the brand new Premier Christianity magazine website. So much more than a monthly magazine, Premier Christianity website helps you go deeper in your faith and is full of inspiration of what God is doing in the world today. It's Premier Christianity, but so much more. Register today at premierchristianity.com. premierchristianity.com You mentioned before that um, your, your theology and your doctrine hasn't, I think you said hasn't really changed since you you grew up in America in a, in a Baptist kind of context, and I guess thinking back to that, um, uh, an emphasis in in that style of, of kind of evangelical Christian is, uh, Christianity is always on the Great Commission, on the need to share our faith, um, to preach the good news, to share the love of Jesus. You Christians use different language, but it all means the same the same sorts of things. So, how's what does that look like for you in terms of? We've talked a little bit about the misplaced fear we can have of, of, of Muslims, but actually, how does that work in terms of what does sharing the gospel, the good news, your faith, what does that look like in your, in your context? And have you seen people um, in your context actually become Christians and turn from Islam to Christianity? So doctrinally, I feel like some of these things, like what you mentioned about evangelicalism and the Great Commission, I don't consider that a core, core thing about doctrinal belief. So in some ways, some of those things have shifted, I could say. Um, so I just want to clarify that. But I think one thing significant about the Great Commission that evangelicals miss is the Great Commandment. And we try to do the Great Commission without thinking about the Great Commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're going to do the Great Commission in some way of telling people about Jesus, but we're not going to do it 
fully engaging and thinking about loving God and loving our neighbor, I think that the Great Commission becomes um, uh, dulled. Or it loses some of its 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 power and its attractiveness. And so um, I think I've just been learning to focus more on loving God and loving my neighbor. And what's beautiful about that is when I love my neighbor and when I love God, I want my neighbor to love what I love. I think naturally when we care about people, we want them to appreciate what we appreciate, whether it's a sports team or a new restaurant we found or a great book we just read. It's natural to, in that sense, evangelize about what we love because we love that other person and we want them to share our joy and to be part of what we also enjoy. And so that has sort of, that has definitely impacted and, and framed how I consider my relationships with Muslims in the sense of, you're my friend, I love you, I love Jesus. It'd be great if we love the same thing. But if you don't, if you don't love Jesus the way that I do, I'm not gonna not love you. Sure. I'm not gonna cancel that friendship. And so in that sense, I think that's very different than how a lot of traditional Great Commission kind of evangelism or mission work has been done in terms of if you're not going to agree with me, then I'm out. I'm going to move on to the next person who will. And that's not an authentic friendship. That's a that's more of an exchange or a demand in some way than a real relationship. And so, you know, I've had great conversations with people both ways. I think I think both my own faith has grown and my Muslim friend's faith has grown as we talk about these things, because they too also have not had necessarily significant relationships with a non-Muslim. And so they're like me, but on the other side of that conversation. And so as we're all asking each other questions and trying to figure out what does it look like to have an, a friendship where we don't agree on these important things, you know, can we still have a friendship and what does that look like? And so um, I, I do think that some of my friends have grown in their own faith through our mm -hmm. conversations. I'm, su I'm surprised to hear there's been that attitude of um you know if people don't kind of convert then that the friendship's over or we're not going to love each other because i think you're right you know hopefully most christians would say yeah the great commandment love love god and love neighbor is is absolutely vital and but would still would still say the great commission is part of that as well and and to love someone is also to, to share i suppose share the truth with them but I understand you don't quite see it that way. So for you, is, is there a, is there a need for, for Muslims to come to know Jesus? Is that, do you see that as something that, that would be good for them and, um, and that you would want, you would want to happen? Sure. I would love for them to come to know and love Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran. I had, I didn't know that before, but he's in the Quran multiple times, working miracles, raising the dead. And so in some sense, they already have a belief that, Jesus was a real person and, and lived definitely different beliefs about whether or not, you know, the incarnation, divinity, um, the cross, resurrection. resurrection yep, yeah. All those things are very different. And so, yeah, I do, you know, I think those things are true. Um, and I would love for my friends to also think that they're true, but I can't force it. It's not up to sure. me. What's up to me is to, to share that and to say what I find compelling about it. And then to not, um, to not make my relationships hinge on acceptance of that or not. Mm. And and if if your Muslim friends were to say, actually, I want to make Jesus Lord and Savior of my life, is that culture? I mean, imagine imagine that's culturally very difficult. Um, in some parts of the world, that's actually very risky to change religion. 
have you have you found that to be the case where you are that it actually it could come with a huge not just a social cost um uh, but actually you know in some parts of the world changing religion can be a life or death thing you know you could actually put your own life at risk but i don't know what it's what it's been like where you are if if you would say that's that's true of where you're at the moment yeah so globally that is true in some places it can be very dangerous for people to change their religion um where i live right now in djibouti it's not that it's not that case um the officially you know majority 99 percent of people here are muslim but there are a couple of churches that are allowed to exist. There's a Catholic cathedral, a Protestant building, and an Ethiopian Orthodox building. And so actually from one point on the, the corniche near the port, I can see the top of each of those three buildings and one of the major mosques. They're all visible, right, in a, in a row. And so in a sense, there's um, people are free to worship as they like. However, there is a lot here, there is still a lot of social pressure to, um, to conform to stay within your family and your culture and your religion. And so, um, you know, if someone did want to officially change their religion, they could face a lot of pushback. I, um, you know, Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew and Paul was a Jew and Mary, they were Jews. And so Jesus never said, become a Christian. In fact, the first time that the disciples were referred to as Christians, it was an insult in Acts. Um, but Jesus said to follow me. And so to me, the label of what someone would choose to call themselves is not ultimately important. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's opportunity here for people to explore all different kinds of faith. There is social pressure in certain ways. Um, and I think how someone decides to talk about their faith matters. You know, you could be very dogmatic and cause offense and, um, or you can be gentle and, and loving too. What's the best thing about living in Djibouti and what's the thing you found the hardest? Oh boy. Um, one of the best things has been, uh, there's, there's a lot, but one of the most profound things for me that I think has been life-changing is to spend so much of my adult life, essentially all of my adult life, in a place where I am the stranger. I'm the one in need of being welcomed. So in the U.S. right now, anyway, I'm not sure about in the U.K., but in the U.S., there's a lot of talk right now about welcoming the stranger, loving the outsider, and which is important. We need to do that. We are called to do that in Scripture. But I have found it extremely growing and humbling to be the stranger who's in need of welcome, who's in need of care and service. And, and the ways that Somali, Jabushin, Muslims have welcomed me and loved me have been, they've moved me to tears multiple times by the extra steps they have taken to welcome the person who speaks with an accent, who eats strange food, who doesn't fit in, who's making cultural faux pas all the time. Um, and people have gone out of their way for us. And that is such a humbling experience. Um, and it has changed the way that I think about people in other situations who are the outsider, who's the newcomer, who's maybe the immigrant or the refugee or the, the different religious person. Um, it's increased my empathy. It's increased my willingness and ability to even welcome them because I know how much that means. And so I think that has been one of the best things. And, and also, you know, I just can't insist on people doing life or doing spiritual worship, anything the way that I want to because I'm not the majority. And so going to church here, for example, we attend the Protestant church and 
I'm, I'm on the board and there are, I think, eight members and we're from, I think, seven different countries with eight different denominational backgrounds. <laughs> and so we have had to really flex and be humble and be, um, you know, submissive to each other in terms of how do we actually worship together when we're bringing all of these different cultures, different languages, different denominational backgrounds together. And what I can expect out of a church service is not some great feeling. It's not some getting out of this service, what I need. It's actually, what can I give? How can I experience being the body with people who are so different from myself? And it's going to matter so much that we gather together in this place to be a light, even though it's hard. And sometimes we don't understand each other. Um, but that sense of humility of giving up my own desires, my own needs, my own comfortability to be able to worship alongside someone else. Um, that is that's been profoundly changing. Wow. That's a long answer to what's the good thing about so, being here. It's a great answer as well. Yeah. So what's the, what's the most challenging or most difficult thing? There's also been some hard things. Yeah. Um, sexual harassment is something that happens here often. Um, I'm a runner, so I'm out and about on the streets a lot. I do stick out. Um, and so that's something that's been quite consistent and frustrating at the same time, I've been with local friends and it happens to them as well. It's not just that I'm foreign and stick out. It's just an issue here in general. And so I've been working with local friends too and other foreigners, like how can we change the conversation about this? How can we make it stop? Um, I know that happens all over the world. And so I don't want to make it sound like it's just here, but that's something that's been a significant challenge. Um, and then, you know, being away from our family and going through, I, I raised my kids from two years old until now they're 20. They're in the United States for university. My youngest was born here. She's now 15. And so raising a family here apart from our grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles, that's been hard. Mm. Um, you know, people have stepped in to fill those roles, but it's different. We miss that family time. You were talking a moment ago about church and how a number of you on the board have all, all come from different uh, denominations, which sounds absolutely uh, fascinating. I'd love to hear a bit more about what church looks like. Um, again, imagine it's very different to the kind of church you grew up in in America. So, uh, so walk me through it. Uh, is this a, is a Sunday morning? Am I walking through a door of a building somewhere? What, what's going on? What's it look like? Good question. So um, it's actually... This year, we've had now two services. There's one on Sunday night, because here the weekend is Friday and Saturday. Friday is the Muslim day of worship. Sunday is the start of the work week. But everybody has very different schedules. A lot of people who attend this church come here for work. Um, and some work at places that work Saturday through Friday. You know, it's very different. So Sunday night is the official French language service at a building. It has a sign. It has a cross up on top. It's not a large building. Not a lot of people, maybe maybe 30 adults. Um, the pastor is from Senegal by Lutheran background himself. And the choir director is from Madagascar. And the other music director is from Congo. People in the band are from Kenya and Korea. It's just such a diverse mix. And so... Um, now this year we started an English language service, which meets on Friday morning um, because there was a lot of foreigners coming who didn't speak French and had no place else to worship um, in a building anyway. And so the English language service is Friday morning. And then there's one sort of 
governing body over both of those. And the English language service is maybe 20 adults. And so that's about the, the whole community. And a couple of times a year, we gather all together. Um, you know, because there's such a diversity of denominational background, things like some of the sacraments um, are handled in different ways. We do take communion together, um, but baptisms sort of, some people do sprinkling of babies. Some people take someone to the ocean and they'll do a more immersion baptism there. And, and we just sort of bless it all. You know, it's all under the covenant of grace in the kingdom of God. The French service in particular is more liturgical than what I've grown up with. And so that's been a learning process. Um, you know, the songs are all in French. It's been, it's been really fun to see what different people bring. And it also can be really hard, you know, to be honest. You have to definitely, like I said, set aside expectations and desire in order to worship how someone else would prefer, you know. It's so interesting because it's so different. Because again, you know, here in the UK, there's very much... I don't, don't want to speak in too, too much broad brushstrokes, but there can be a perception of, well, if I don't like the worship at this church or I don't like the sermon, there's one 10 minutes down the road and I'll just drive over there. And it sounds like you don't have that kind of luxury. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so true. You know, we have, there's, this is the church. If you want to go to a Protestant church, this is where you go. Yeah. And so, yeah, you have to, you just can't be so set on particular ways. And it's not perfect um, and we're always growing. But another significant thing is we're, we very much take it seriously that we are welcomed here by a Muslim country and by a government that doesn't have to let us exist. And so we're very respectful of the rules and the laws that they ask of us as a community. And so, you know, we don't want to ruin that for future people either. Uh, taking that history seriously is important. It's, it's so different. And I, I appreciate it for different reasons than I appreciate mm -hmm. my American church community. We're reaching an interesting tipping point here in the UK where in past years, the majority would be Christian. Whereas now, of course, that's not, not the case. And we've, we've now got a situation where um, the, there's a much larger percentage of people who would identify as having no religion or, or another religion. Um, and so while it's not quite right to speak of Christians as a, as a minority as such, if you look at the trends, it's heading in that kind of a direction, actually, where the number of people in this country who identify as Christian um, is is going is on the downward trend. And of course, I know in America, there's very, very similar trends as well. And so my question to you is, what do Christians here in the UK, what can we learn from your experience? Because you've, as you say, you've lived your whole adult life in a, in a situation where you're not the majority religion. And so I'd be fascinated to hear from you if you think there are lessons or things you've learned that actually UK Christians would find helpful, given we do live in a society where actually we, we're not the majority. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually there, there are other worldviews that we have to we have to probably get a little bit better at learning to live alongside. Yeah, absolutely. I think about that often, not just my own experience, but other countries, you know, Ethiopia, Kenya, they, so many other countries have multiple religions living and working alongside each other without the same kind of fear <clears throat> that there may be arising up in some of the people in the UK or the, the United States. Um, I think one thing is that we need to learn about the other religion from the people in that religion. So a lot of American Christians will learn about Islam, but they'll learn about it from a Christian or someone who has a very negative idea of it. But I, I would really encourage people to learn from Muslims themselves or Buddhists or whoever it is of that religion. Um, and then I think increasing knowledge just decreases fear. 
it helps us know how to engage in some way. And then we need to be humble. We need to be loving. We need to recognize that, look, this neighbor is also trying to get through the day. They're trying to raise a good family. They're trying to find work. And can we partner in some way to help each other instead of setting it up as some kind of me versus you? Can we partner as humans trying to live a life that's satisfying and meaningful? I recently read a book by Miroslav Wolf called Exclusion and Embrace. And he talks about this idea of the embrace being open arms. And so in, in terms of relating with someone who's different from ourselves, we open our arms we wait, then we close our arms, and then we release our arms. So in a sense, we're opening our arms to this person of a different culture, different religion. We wait for them to respond to our welcome of saying, hey, will you come in? Will you talk to me about this thing or just partner with me in life? We wait so that they have the freedom to approach us. And then we embrace and we say kind of to each other, I recognize that you are human. I recognize that you are worshiping God the way that you believe is right and true. And so am I. And so we have this, you know, just a neutral, positive exchange. And then we release, we let them go. We don't force any kind of change. We don't require that ourselves change. So in that sense, there's this humble opening of, would you like to, you know, experience life with me? Would you like to worship alongside me or pray with me? But you don't have to. And then, you know, letting them go back into how they are. Does that make sense? Like in that sense of a warm welcome and embrace into my holy experience, my, my regular daily life, those two things can be combined um, and sharing that together and then releasing the other person to continue on their own journey. Um, I think that if we can just recognize that that's what people want and value, I think we can live alongside each other in peace and not feel threatened. It's not a threat to me, to have someone think differently than me. That's okay. I don't agree with you. I think this, but I'm not scared of you because we're different. So do you think then looking ahead for, for your future, you are in Djibouti for the long haul? Um, or do you think actually, I oh, wouldn't, wouldn't mind getting back to America? What do you think the future holds? Um, that's an interesting question because right now, I, so when we came to Africa, people often said to us, aren't you scared to live there? And now I look the other direction across the ocean <laughs> and I think, ooh, <laughs> things have changed a lot. And maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm afraid or scared to go that direction. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what the future holds. I, my daughter, my youngest, would really like to graduate high school from here. And then we'll sort of see after that. But yeah, I don't know. I've lately been thinking maybe we should just stay. Djibouti yeah. is a great place right now, so. There you go. Well, if if uh, yeah, if you are feeling a little bit like things are a bit scary in America or the UK, then you can recommend it. Djibouti is the place to go. <laughs> yeah, people might not quite believe me, but it's hey, it's been good for us. <laughs> That's great to hear. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for talking. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for great questions. I'm Sam Howes and you have been listening to The Profile Podcast. Really hope you enjoyed that interview. There's loads more where that one came from. Over 200 interviews with different Christians from all walks of life available now on The Profile Podcast and new ones coming each and every week. 
if you have been enjoying these interviews, we would so appreciate it if you could take just five seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. It helps other people to discover the show. So why not do that now? Give us a rating and a review and we'll see you next time.